You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Will you all please pray with me? Jesus, Oh, we just invite your presence, Lord. Um, I pray, God, uh, that you would really um, give us eyes to see what you've been up to this year, this really hard, really beautiful year. And I pray, Lord, uh, that you would give us a vision, Lord, for your favorite year for our life. God, for the year of your favor, Lord, and what that could look like this year. We just pray it in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Well, again, good morning. Uh, welcome. Um, last year, so uh, this has kind of been talked about a little bit. Um, there's a classic city tradition every year. Um, I roll into town, and uh, I have the honor and pleasure of giving the sermon either right after or, or right before New Year's. Um, and, and so it's just become a tradition. It's just what we do, and I love it. Um, uh, <laughs> And last year, um, the Lord really strongly impressed my heart when I, when I came to Classic City and, and gave a New Year's sermon um, to share about this Jewish tradition called the Shemitah and the Year of Jubilee. Um, and so I'm going to do, I, I can't remember most of the sermons that I heard last week, um, so I'm assuming no one is, is just fresh on their mind thinking, oh yeah, of course, Jubilee, Shemitah, that's what. Um, so what I'm going to do real quick um, is just talk a little bit about what we talked about last year, um, right before 2020 started. See, right before 2020 started, the Lord um, kind of led me to, to share this, put this really strongly in my heart. There's this Jewish tradition, uh, you can read about it all in Leviticus 25, called the Year of Sabbath, or the Shemitah. And right along with it, there's another celebration that the Jewish people recognized that God asked them to follow, called the Year of Jubilee. And uh, they were considered really precious. See, God said that that was his favorite celebration. He said the Passover... Uh, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all these other really important Jewish holidays that they would celebrate every year. He said, those are really great holidays because you're remembering what I've done for you. But he said, if you want to know what my favorite holiday is, my favorite celebration, if you want my kind of year, if you want to celebrate me just for my sake, you will always celebrate the year of Sabbath, and you will always celebrate the Jubilee year. And uh, what those were, again, you can read about this all in Leviticus 25. It's, it's long and beautiful and very boring for a lot of us 21st century people. Um, I warn you, it, it is a little boring, um, but it's wonderful. In uh, Jewish tradition, every seven years, they'd have what they called a Sabbath year. Um, and what God told them was, every seven years, I want you to shut down your agriculture. And remember, this is an agricultural society. So he said, every seven years, I want you to shut down the economy completely. You will live off of whatever grows out of the ground, but you will not sow anything and you won't reap any like harvest. So he told them, hey, just rely on me for an entire year. Take a year of solemn rest, serious resting, just relying on whatever I give you. And he promised to provide them whatever they needed, not what they wanted that year, but what they needed. He said, take the year just to focus on me. Do nothing but worship and rest. And then every 50 years, so every 49 years, every seven, seven years, after the seventh year of Sabbath, 
after an entire year of economic shutdown, of doing nothing but worshiping and resting, the Lord asked his people to have what he called a year of jubilee. And again, it was, came to be called the year of the Lord's favor. It's funny, when we hear um, that, that scripture, that verse in Luke, we think, oh, this is the year that God's going to favor us. But what it literally translates to is God's favorite year. And God said, every 50 years, I want you to have a year of my favor. I want you to have my favorite year. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, after shutting down the economy for an entire year, after producing nothing, after doing nothing but worshiping and resting for an entire year, I'm going to ask you to do it again. Jubilee was a, a, the word jubilee, literally what it translates to in the ancient Hebrew, it's like a, a, a word or a sound of like celebration. So like here in Athens, we have this phrase, go dogs. And if you were to ask, we've, <laughs> my wife and I um, have some students right now that we're um, mentoring that are from other countries. And when we try to explain to them what go dogs means, they're like, what? We're like, it doesn't have a meaning. Literally, literally if you were to literally say what go dogs means, it's like, it doesn't really have any meaning, but what it means for us is it's what you say when you're just so excited you don't have words. And so you say, go dogs, or like, woohoo, or yippee, or huzzah. You know, every culture has their little things. In uh, China, they have this phrase, jiao yo, and what it literally means is like, go. But no one actually wants you to go when they say jiao yo. It's like cheering you on. It's like, good luck. Right? It doesn't mean anything. It's what you say when you don't have any words left. And God said, my jubilee, my expression of joy, what would make me so happy, I would jubilee, is if after taking an entire year of shutdown and of focusing on me, you took another year to shut down and then took it one step further. He said, in this jubilee year, you're going to take it one step further. So you're not just going to shut everything down. You're not just going to focus on me for another year. During that year, while everything is shut down, while you're in financially very taxing season, I want those of you who are in desperation, those of you who are enslaved or in serious debt or who've lost your family land, I want you to actively acknowledge and come before people and say, I need grace. I need redemption. Those of you who are in serious need, you have to unveil your need to everyone and say, hey, we need our family's land back. Hey, we need grace. Hey, we need redemption. And those of you who have means, those of you who would have been called the kinsman redeemer, right, the, the heads of your communities, those of you with power or influence or privilege, those of you who have resources, you are called by God in that year to pay the price so that they can receive grace. It wasn't just debt forgetness. It was debt forgiveness. And what God actually called his people to do is after two years of shutting down the economy, those who had, still after two years of shutting down the economy, were called to pay for the issues, the problems, the sins, the struggles of those who did not have. And this is what the Lord said was his favorite celebration. This was his favorite way of living, and he took it so far. Jesus, when he arrived on the scene, his first act of ministry, um, Pastor Lisa was sharing in that inspiration. Jesus' first act when he arrived on the scene was to walk up in the synagogue of his hometown, to walk up to the front, to read from the scroll of Isaiah 61, which is a, ta a verse talking about and prophesying about the year of the Lord's favor, this favorite year of God, this jubilee year. And his first act was to say, I'm come to fulfill this. If you're going to follow me and what I'm going to do on earth is make your entire lifestyle that sort of lifestyle. 
what I was calling you to every seven years, what I was calling you to every 50 years, I'm going to call you to it all the time. Sabbath and grace and redemption as a lifestyle. And if we follow Jesus, what he literally said, the first thing he said when he arrived on the scene, his first act of ministry was to say, if you really want to follow me, expect a lot of Sabbath years. Expect a lot of jubilee. That was uh, what the Lord put on my heart a year ago. And um, I stood up here and um, felt him lead me to say this. And so I asked the question, if the Lord were to ask us to shut down our economy for a year, how would we respond? Yeah. Um, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Be very careful what you preach. Um, 2020 has been an interesting year. 2020 has not been a fun year. Um, it's been really, it's been really, really interesting um, seeing how um, our country has talked about 2020. Um, uh, this was actually mentioned, Pastor Lee mentioned this a couple days ago at Christmas Eve. But if you um, watched any sports over the last week, then you will have seen this commercial of 2020 marrying the devil. <laughs> it's literally uh, on one of these date sites. Their, their commercial, um, what they were showing their reflection on this year was literally that this was the year from hell. Um, and that's really, really interesting. And I can't tell you how many times my training, my background is in um, cultural evaluation. So what I do is I pay attention to the things that I hear people saying all the time without thinking. Because um, you can often learn a lot about where people are at as a community if you just pay attention to those little things they say all the time without thinking. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say this was a bad year. And what's really interesting, it's not surprising to me that, that people who are secular, people who don't know the Lord, people who don't follow Jesus or have experienced his grace, it's not surprising to me at all that people would say that. And it's also totally understandable for us to talk about 2020 as a terrible year. Even just as a church community, we have lost some really precious people this year as a church community, much less as a, as a nation and as a community, as individuals. It has been a very hard, terrible, brutal year, but it's a very weird thing for me, maybe I'm being nitpicky, but it's a very weird thing for me to hear the people of God talk about this year as a bad year, or as the year from hell, or as a year where Satan really went to work. It's a very weird thing for me, because I look at Scripture if you look at scripture and you see the kind of jubilee that God said was his favorite kind of year, a year with, with the economy being shut down where you were told, hey, you can't always achieve and you can't always produce and you can't keep consuming and you can't just buy your way into happiness or distract your way out of this one. You see, his favorite year was a year where you had to cry out for help and where you were desperate and you were put in a situation where you needed grace to survive, where it became really apparent when and where and how people needed grace after two years of economic shutdown. His favorite kind of year, I look at scripture and I see Jesus' favorite year, the year he said, I'm going to come to make your entire lives about this, was redemptive sacrifice. Giving to people, not when you have a lot of money, not when you're comfortable, but after two whole years of economic shutdown, then the Lord telling you, okay, now I'm going to ask you to pay for other people's 
sins. Now I'm going to ask you to cover other people's debt. Now I'm going to ask you to sacrifice when you're going to feel it, when it's going to hurt, when it's going to be a sacrifice like you've never gone, like you've never given before, like you've never done before. Then that's going to be my favorite year for your life. It's hard for me to read scripture and still think about 2020 as a bad year or the year from hell. It sounds a lot more to me like a terrible good year. And the first question, there's three questions I'm going to ask us today as a church. The first question I want us to reflect on, I'm preaching to myself as well, I want y'all to hear that from the get-go, is whether 2020 was a bad year or whether it was a terrible good one. Was 2020 the year from hell where Satan reigned or was it a year from heaven that was really hard for us to stomach? Is our view of heaven really, our view of jubilee, our view of God's will for our lives really clear? Or is our view of, of God's will for our lives, when we see what God's will for our lives is, do we look at it and say, oh, that's hell? The first question I want us to ask. That was last year's sermon, but this is this year's sermon. <laughs> this is this year's sermon. It's really interesting when you read about Jubilee um, in Scripture, there's almost no cases. There's tons of talk about it. Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, gets talked about New and Old Testament all the time. But there's actually only one time, I, I'm not the greatest biblical scholar in all the world, there might be a time that I missed, but I could only find, and I've only heard in research and in, in my theological places that I was going to and, and reading the scripture, there's only one time we actually see the people of God participate in a jubilee. One time. And it's in Jeremiah 34. And so the first place we're going to be in scripture today is Jeremiah 34. We're going to be in verses, I'm just going to read from verses 14 through 15, but if you're wondering where we're at, where we're at and what the passage is, it's Jeremiah 34. And in Jeremiah 34, Jeremiah reminds the king, Jeremiah was a prophet and a priest, so he was very familiar with scripture and, and listening to God, and um, he went to the king and said, hey king, it's time for a jubilee. It's time for a year of the Lord's favor. And normally, if you read Jeremiah's life, he got rejected a lot. He got told to shut up. He got thrown in prison. He got thrown in ditches when he would come to the king. But this time, the king actually says, oh yeah, we'll do it. We'll do the ritual. We'll, we'll go through a year of jubilee. We'll, we'll follow what God's word said. We'll, we'll commit to this. And so Jeremiah's surprised, and he's like, oh wow, okay, cool. Yeah, let's, let's do it. And he leads the people through the jubilee ritual. They blow the horn, and they do the sacrifice, and they prepare for a year of the Lord's favor. But then look what happens. This is in verse 14. This is 14 through 16. At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who's been sold to you and served six years. You must set them free from your service, but your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. So he acknowledges, he's talking to them after seeing what they've done with this year. And he says, hey, there's never been any other people who followed this. Then he says this, you recently repented. You did what was right in my eyes, by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before God, before me, in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, took back their servants, whom you had set free according to their desire, 
and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. He goes on to say, because of this, it's going to end in destruction. This favorite year of mine is going to be a terrible year for you. Because after saying that you wanted this, after saying you wanted my will for your life, after saying you wanted my favorite year for your life, you turned back. This is the only time in Scripture that we see people actually attempt a jubilee, and it goes terrible. It goes absolutely terrible. They go in and about five minutes in realize this is going to be economic suicide. This is going to make us super uncomfortable. This is going to challenge us like never before. And well, uh, maybe we'll just take it back just a little bit. Let's back it up just a little bit. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's stop and think about this. And because of that, they miss out on this favorite year. This is the one time we ever see someone try this. So it's understandable that if the Lord were to ever call us to a jubilee, season or moment or year, it would be really hard for us to dig in. We shouldn't be surprised that this year has been brutal for us because it was brutal for the people of God and always has been. There's only one time actually other than this where we see the people of God attempting to follow all of his word, including Jubilee and Sabbath. And it's kind of indirectly mentioned, but it's uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23. There's this king named Josiah. And Josiah, if you, if you stick here at Claxa uh, City long enough, we love talking about Josiah. Um, Josiah was known as the great king or the faultless king. He was known as a blameless king. Uh, not perfect, he wasn't a perfect person, but he was literally set up as the example for how life was meant to be lived, how a pursuit for God was really meant to be lived. There was this refrain, this saying that people would say about Josiah. They said he had no idols. He would have no idols. And Josiah takes over the kingship. He's young, he's a young king, and he takes over. And he immediately sets out to prepare the people of God for, for God's will, including the year of the Lord's favor. And as he walks into the temple, he encounters some serious resistance. I want to I read y'all just this passage of what happens when Isaiah walks into the temple, what he sees. And then we're going to break it down, just talk about this, this resistance that he sees to the year of the Lord's favor. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the priests and all the prophets, all the people, both small and great, they all went with him. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after him and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes and with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, made for Asherah, and all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, or Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations, all the host of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron. He burned it too at the brook and beat it into dust. 
and put the dust in the graves of people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who are in the house of the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Who were in the house of the Lord and the women who wove hangings to Asherah. He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and he defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were the entrance to the gates of Joshua and the governor of the city, which was one, the one left at the gate of the city. This is verse 9. However, the priests of, of the high places did not come to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread amongst their brothers. And then this, verse 10, we'll end here. I know this is incredibly stimulating. This is just super exciting. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. Okay, I'm going to stop there. It goes on and on and on. It literally goes on for an entire chapter of Scripture, a very long chapter of Scripture, talking about all the different things that Josiah had to burn. Uh, When Josiah walked into the temple of God, when he prepared the people for the year of the Lord's favor, he immediately encountered resistance. And that resistance came in the form of the gods of Canaan. Especially these three primary gods that get mentioned in this passage. He walked in and he saw shrines in the temple of God to Baal or Baal. There's a couple different ways of pronouncing it. Asherah, sometimes called Ashtaroth, or the queen of heaven. And Molech. He saw shrines just outside of the temple to Molech. And, and it's really important. That doesn't mean anything to us nowadays, but, but to understand what, what Josiah would have seen happening as he walked into the temple to try and consecrate it, to try and prepare God's people for the year of the Lord's favor. See, he walked in and the first God he encountered was a shrine to Baal or Baal. Uh, now, uh, just a side note, you're going to hear me pronounce it different ways just because that's my habit. Um, Side note, if you're ever reading scripture and you're worried about pronouncing something wrong, right? When I, was a, when I was younger, I used to get really, really scared or nervous if I was reading scripture about pronouncing the names wrong. All of the languages that scripture was originally written in, Kenoi Greek and ancient Hebrew, are both dead languages, which means no one actually knows how to pronounce them well. So if you're ever feeling self-conscious about, I don't know how to pronounce this Melchizedek, Melchizedek, no one knows. So you're good. You're great. You're in the clear. If someone tries to make fun of the way you pronounce it, just make fun of them back. Um, it's great. Okay, side note. Uh, so you're going to hear me say ball or bayal or ball or pronounce it whichever way. There's a B involved and there's an all involved. Um, as long as you got that, you, you probably pronounced it right. But Baal was this uh, god, uh, and literally his name, Baal, or Baal, was the Hebrew word for powerful person or wealthy person. This was the god of harvest. Baal was known for promising, if you just sacrifice to me regularly, I will provide you a harvest every single year. I will always bring the rain. I will always bring the harvest. You will always have plenty if you offer to me. And Baal was literally represented uh, in their culture and in their society as a cow. So this was the cow god, which I know to us doesn't it's kind of funny. It's like, what is this, eat more chicken? Um, but, but what Baal would have represented to them, uh, remember this is an agrarian society. This is a, an economy that's literally built upon your flocks and an economy that's built upon your harvest. And so what a god that, that took the form of a cow would have represented was literally, it would have been like a dollar sign to us today. 
This, this God would have represented the dollar sign. I mean, this was the God of wealth, prosperity. This was the God who gave you stuff and always promised to provide for you. And if you sacrifice to Baal, he promised you an eternal harvest. And it's easy to see why the people of Israel started to bring Baal shrines into the temple. Because while Yahweh, while Jesus, while God was saying, hey, if you follow me, I'm going to ask you to have years of my favor. I'm going to ask you to take Sabbath years where we shut down the economy for a while. If you follow me, I'm going to give you what you need, not necessarily what you want. I'm going to give you enough to get by. I'm going to provide for you always. I'm going to take care of you, but it might not always be as much as you think you need. It can be, it's very easy to understand why Baal would have started to get mixed in. And it's also understandable because Baal, uh, on the surface, worshiping Baal looked a lot like worshiping Yahweh. All you did was set up an altar, which is what you did when you worshiped Jesus in the ancient world, when you worshiped Yahweh. Set up an altar, put an animal on it, and kill it. Looks really similar. And as Josiah would have entered in, he would have seen priests of Baal. This is what he does. He walks in the temple and he sees priests of Baal, killing animals, just like the priests of Yahweh, just like the priests of God. There was a slight difference, though. See, Baal told his followers, all you have to do is get my attention, and then, then I'll give you the rains, I'll give you the harvest. I'll provide for you, you'll have plenty. So at first, all you do is sacrifice an animal, but sometimes... The harvest wouldn't come after that. And what you were supposed to understand was Baal was just busy. He just needed a little bit more to get his attention. So you'd sacrifice another and another and another. And if that wasn't enough, we see this in Kings, uh, earlier in Kings, when Elijah goes up against people who are worshiping Baal. What they would start to do, well, they'd start to scream at the top of their lungs to get his attention. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? If that was enough, then you started to beat yourself. And then maybe if that wasn't enough, well, maybe Baal just needed a little bit of extra attention, so you'd take a little knife, a tiny knife, and just scrape yourself till you bled, just a little bit. And that's all Baal asked. But if you kept wanting the harvest and Baal kept not showing up, well then, one cut, two cut, three cut started to add up. One beat, two beat, three beats started to add up. And the seductive lie of Baal, who promised, if you just keep going, if you just keep taking, if you just keep accumulating, just keep buying, just keep going, just keep harvesting, just keep working, was that eventually he destroyed you. And so as Josiah would have walked in, he would have seen people cutting themselves and destroying themselves, killing themselves slowly, to get the attention of the God who promised a productive, accomplished, successful, busy year, preparing them for the year of the Lord's favor. See, the thing is you can never experience Sabbath rest. You'll never experience the peace of Christ if you are constantly serving the God of production, constantly serving the God of achievement, constantly serving the God of consuming constantly serving the God of our busy distractions. He'll never enter into his favor. But it's so easy, and it's so easy to look a lot like God, right? 
we think of God with a lot of excellence in mind. It's so easy to get it mixed up in there. And so as Josiah walked in, that scene of, of, of Josiah walking in and seeing people cutting themselves to have their harvest, this is what he saw. And it, and it seems really scary to us, but how many of us, when we're faced with an opportunity for Sabbath, would rather choose busyness and distraction? How many of us, when we're told, hey, shut everything down, just keep going after the work. Just keep trying to consume. Just keep trying to buy. Just keep trying to produce. Just keep trying to achieve a little bit more. Gets mixed in there. The first God of Canaan, Baal. The second God, which was seen in some ways more, but it was more surreptitious, was Asherah. Asherah, or Ashtaroth sometimes. Uh, sometimes they're presented as a mother and daughter goddesses, and sometimes they're presented as one, but Asherah or Ashtaroth. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see Asherapol or Asherim gets brought up over and over and over again. And what an Asherapol was, um, without being too explicit, um, was a wooden uh, shrine that you would build, and it was shaped like a cylinder straight up out the ground, or like two ovals side by side. And, and if that's a, a weird image for you, it should be. Um, they were intentionally shaped to be um, male and female private parts. And uh, what the symbolism meant was if you wanted uh, Asherah's blessing, all you had to do was have some pleasure. Um, Asherah uh, or Ashtaroth was known as the fertility goddess, which is a very nice way that, that researchers talk about. She was a, a goddess of lust. She was a goddess of pleasure. She was a goddess of carnality. And uh, when it talks about the male and female shrine prostitutes, that's how um, at least the ESV will talk about them. Um, the priests, male and female, of Asherah would go to her shrines, and you knew whether you went under the cover of night, you could wear a mask so no one would know who you were. You could go blazing in, in the open, but if you went to a shrine of Asherah, you knew that they were going to have an orgy and immense carnal pleasure. And these were widespread. These were all over the place. So much so that they eventually infiltrated the temple of God. And so if you can imagine what it would have been like for Josiah walking in, he would have seen the priests of Yahweh literally making offerings before the Lord. And literally while he walks in, he would have also seen on the other side of the room, Asherah poles, where people were in the middle of having gross, crazy, perverted experiences in public, right there in the temple of God. While one priest is literally sitting there trying to pray to the Lord, other priests, shrine prostitutes, are out there doing their work and their business, having a party. Can you imagine? This is what Josiah walked into, and it sounds crazy to us, gross to us, scary to us, but how much does porn and lust and addiction infiltrate our church today? See, the scary thing about Asherah is that she would strip people of their identity in Christ and obviously would distract them. She distracted from the worship of God. But how much of our worship is distracted by Asherah today? The second God that kept the people of the Lord from his year of favor. The third god of Canaan, which doesn't get mentioned very often because no one actually likes to talk about him by name, is Molech. 
Molech. And right outside the temple of God, it says there was a shrine to him that Josiah had to deal with. And um, it talks about this a little bit in the passage, but Molech was a very simple God. He was the God of power and victory, specifically of conquerors. See, Molech wasn't the God who just promised you, hey, if you worship me, I'll give you victory. What he really was about, he was about those people who already had wealth, already won victories, already were secure, and he promised you could keep whatever you gained, you could keep whatever you conquered, as long as you give me a simple sacrifice. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. You just made a quick altar, you started a fire, and you threw the sacrifice in. The only thing was the sacrifice that he asked for was living children. And as Josiah walks outside the temple or walks up to the temple, he sees a shrine to Molech right there on the outside. He would have literally seen mothers and fathers throwing in their children into the fire to be burned. This is what had infiltrated or been just on the outskirts of the people of God. You know, it's interesting. Molech is the only God, lowercase g, the only deity, the only power in Canaan that's actually shown beating God's people at any point. All the other deities just get destroyed whenever God's people go, come against them. But there was one king, one time, most of the time when they go up against Molech, they just demolish him. There's one time in all of scripture in the Old Testament when God's people come against another god or another king and don't outright win. And it's when they come against a king who worships Molech. See, they come against him, and this king, as he's about to be destroyed, his walls are about to fall, he takes his oldest son, his heir, who he's been investing his entire future in, and he throws him off the walls. And as soon as he hits the floor, the people of Israel just don't seem able to get over the walls. And so they march back and wait for another day. It's the only time in Scripture when God doesn't just outright destroy another deity. Molech worked. That sacrifice worked, at least in some way, shape, or form. There was a catch, though. See, nowadays when we hear that, hear Molech worship, hear the killing of children, we have a sentimental, emotional cringe, and we should. It's evil. It's terrible. It's vile. But in the ancient world, they had a slightly different view of children. See, nowadays when we look at children, we value them and we want to protect them because children are innocent and pure in our eyes. There's an innocence to them. There's a preciousness. That sort of existed in the ancient world, but the real thing they saw when they looked at their children in the ancient world was their future and their legacy. See, a man could be the most wealthy, powerful, skillful, wise man in the world, but if his children were failures, he was a failure. And his legacy was one of failure. A woman could be the most silly, not smart, worthless woman in the world, but if she raised daughters who were lovely and worthy and wonderful, she was considered the greatest of successes. Because children were your future. They were you were never fully dead as long as you still had children in the world because they carried on your legacy. They were your memory on this earth and you never really died as long as you had children. See, all Molech, see, what Molech really was offering, he said, I will let you hold on to whatever you have, whatever you've accomplished, whatever you've conquered, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you have, I'll let you hold on to it. It'll just cost you your legacy. It'll just cost you your eternal line. And I can't help but think that as that king watched his son die, 
and watched it worked, watched the army of Israel back off, I can't help but think that one of the reasons why the Lord just said, hey, back off, guys, was that he'd already lost. In a couple years, his reign was going to end, and he would have nothing left on this earth. Now, it's easy to imagine uh, Molech worship on the outskirts of the temple as this terrible and vile thing, but how often when we are called to let go of our comfort, to let go of our whatever we have, whatever we've accomplished, our identities, our, our whatever, how often do we refuse to let it go or, or give it up kicking and screaming to the Lord when he calls us outside of our comfort, outside of our accomplishments, outside of whatever we have that's ours? I can't help but think that Jesus was thinking in some way, shape, or form of Molech when he said, what good is it if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? And how often, especially in a year like 2020, where it's just become really clear, do we hold on to our comfort? Do we hold on to whatever we have rather than sacrificially giving? When we realize we have privilege, when we have possessions, we have resources, how often do we cling to it? How often do we hold on and refuse to let it go and miss out on the eternal that Jesus is offering us, even in the church. And the thing is, as Josiah walked in and tried to prepare the people for the year of the Lord's favor, he would have walked in and thought this. He would have walked in and thought, you will never be able to live sacrificially and be a part of God's redemptive sacrifice, be a part of God's purposes we talk about this all the time here at Classic City, participating in the purposes of God. You'll never be able to participate in his purposes until you are willing to sacrifice to the point where it hurts, to let go and surrender whatever you have for his glory, for the eternal glory that he offers. The second question I want to ask us is who was the God of our 2020? Was it really Yahweh, or, or did we have some other gods mixed into our temples? And along with that, the question that I think stands before us today is, who will be the God of our next year? Who will be the God of our next year? Will we embrace it when the Lord, whether it's a moment or a season or an entire year, will we embrace it? when the Lord identifies our idols and we have to burn them and, and get rid of them, will we embrace it when he calls us to Sabbath? Will we embrace it when he calls us to need grace and to cry out for it? Will we embrace it when he calls us to redemptive sacrifice, to participate in his purposes? Will we see it as a terrible, beautiful moment from heaven or will we still see it as a moment from hell. That question, who will be the God of your year? Let us pray. Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would be the God of our year. I pray, Holy Spirit, um, if there is any idolatry um, in us or around us, Lord, we just pray that you uh, would burn it out of our hearts, Lord. We pray that we'd be consecrated, that we'd be um, totally dedicated to you, Lord. And I pray as we enter into this new year, Lord, as we reflect on this last one, God, I pray, Jesus, that we would give it all to you, 
that you'd be the Lord of it. God, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.